This is the natural response. For Luke, this is what happens. When you encounter Christ, you go out and you tell everybody about it. And this is the first encounter we have of that. At the end of eight days, verse 21, when he was circumcised, he was named Jesus and the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, when the time had come for their purification, according to the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male who will be set apart for the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is specified in the law and the Lord, a pair of doves or two pigeons. Now, there are three ceremonies that are in view. And these are three ceremonies that are required of two which are required for only males that are born and one of which is required for everybody. So there's three ceremonies. By emphasizing these three ceremonies, which the Bible never emphasizes or talks about families doing this, but by emphasizing, he's making it clear that Mary and Joseph are obedient to the law, that they're starting to raise their child in the right way, in obedience to the law. In obedience to the Abrahamic covenant, that every male child shall be circumcised and be made a part of the Abrahamic covenant, they do that. So not only is he in the line of David, now he's showing himself to be the rightful descendant the rightful community member of the Abrahamic covenant. So the events of Luke here involve three separate ceremonies that have been summarized together in one. First is the purification of the woman. Forty days after birth, the law stated that the mother of the male boy was unclean for seven days and then had to be confirmed for confined for 33 days, after which she would journey to the temple to offer a lamb as a burnt offering and offer a turtle dove as a sin offering. In the Levitical law, Things that make you unclean is blood and touching dead bodies. And these are two major things that make you unclean and and touching diseases. These three things. When a woman is given birth, there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of fluids. And it can take, it's multiple days for the woman to stop bleeding and to heal. And for those who have been pregnant or have people that you know are pregnant, it takes a couple weeks before they're finally like, healthy enough to be strenuous and activity and that kind of stuff. And so the law said that during this time period, 40 days, they were to be confined. They were to stay home, okay? And they were to recuperate, and they were considered unclean. They were not allowed to go out and touch a bunch of other people. They weren't allowed to go into the temple to worship God and that kind of stuff. And order, now remember, you might think, well, that's really extreme. Well, today we have medicines and hygiene products. Back then they didn't. People hardly bathe, and they don't have penicillin, and there's a lot of sweat, and there's not like a lot of gauze around, and that kind of stuff. And so this is just quarantine, basically, in order to be safe. And so she's being obedient to that by following the law according to its requirements. Second was the presentation of the firstborn to Yahweh from Exodus 13. It was later allowed to be redeemed for five shekels. The law required that every firstborn male of every single family was to be dedicated to God and serve as a priest forever. So that every child, firstborn male of every family, of every tribe, would serve as priest. But when Israel committed the sin of the golden calf, and they joined into that, they all lost the right to give their firstborn as a priest to God. The only people that did not lose that right was Levi because they stood next to Moses against the golden calf and executed the judgment of God. So 
every Levite, when their firstborn male was born, they would present it to God to serve as a priest in the temple or the tabernacle for their entire life. But the reality is those firstborn still belong to God. God saved those firstborn males when they put the blood on the doorpost of the lamb in the Exodus, and he spared them from death. So they all technically belong to him. So you're required to go to the temple and present your son to be a priest to God. But later, you would then have to go and redeem your son back. So you would present your child as a priest, and then you would take him home. But because he's not allowed to be a priest, then you would later go back again, and you would buy him back from God. And this was a practice that they would have to do. Now, I don't know if there's anything to this, but many scholars have pointed out that the ceremony of dedicating Jesus as a priest to the temple is recorded. But the ceremony of buying him back is not recorded which would be interesting because Jesus is going to actually be the high priest. And yet he was never bought back from God, like every other Judaite would have been. And third is the actual dedication. So think of baby dedications in your church, where this would be the dedication of the firstborn to the Lord to serve him and to be in obedience with him. So basically they're doing what they're supposed to do in fulfillment of the law. Now, verse 25 is they're in the temple and they're encountering a man by the name of Simeon. And Simeon is like a prophet. So now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout, looking for the restoration of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen Lord's Christ. So Simeon, directed by the Spirit, came into the temple courts, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary according to the law, Simeon took him in his arms and blessed God, saying, Simeon is an old guy who's been going to the temple like on a regular basis because God gave him a vision, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. And lo and behold, this is the day that the Messiah is there. And the Spirit of Yahweh comes upon him like a prophet, and he begins to prophesy, holding the child. And he says this, Now according to your words, Sovereign Lord, permit your servant to depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have pre prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now this is interesting because so far kingship has been emphasized. Sociopolitical and spiritual redemption has been emphasized by these prophecies and hymns. And being a Messiah of the poor and the outcast has been emphasized. But now we have our reference to the Gentiles. And remember, Gentiles is just a Greek word that means the nations. And it refers to anybody who is not a Jew. He's emphasizing this Messiah has not just come for the Jews. He's come for the Gentiles as well. They all belong. And Luke is clearly establishing the roots that he's going to develop all throughout the rest of this gospel. So the child's father and mother were amazed at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Mary, listen carefully. This child is destined to be the cause of the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be the sign that will be, will be rejected. Indeed, as the result of him, the thoughts of many hearts 
will be revealed and the sword will pierce your own soul as well. So Simeon goes on and says, this child will cause people to rise and fall. That's Mary's hymn. That's Mary's song. That he lifts people up and he brings people down. He's going to turn the world upside down and flip the socio-political conditions of the world. He will be a sign of rejection. This Messiah is going to be the dominoes that lead to Israel's rejection of their own Messiah, of their own God. They're going to walk away because of your child. Indeed, as a result of him, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The true hearts, the true intentions, the true corruption of God's chosen people will be revealed. And the sword will even pierce her soul as well. Probably the fact that she's going to watch her own son die in the most horrific way that anybody could ever die in human history. And what's interesting is that Simeon sees this praise of great hope and great joy. The Messiah has come and everybody has. But then all of a sudden he shifts and there's a darkness. Yeah, but the world is going to be flipped. The people who think they're in are going to be brought down. And the people who always thought they were out are going to be lifted up. And he, what he says and what he's going to do is going to anger the Jews to the point that the nation is going to reject him. And even you are going to suffer, probably as she watches everything, not just the death, but everything that happens throughout his life. This is not all good news. There is a judgment here that is also going to be happening. Then we come to Anna. Verse 36, there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher, and she was very old, having been married to her husband for seven years until his death. Anna is important because she's a prophetess. And she's a prophetess, which means she's a female prophet. And we don't get a lot of those in the Bible. Miriam was a female prophet, and um, Huldah, and Deborah. But does anybody remember what it means to be a prophet? What's the criteria for being a prophet? You remember? A prophet is a prophet because they're on the divine council of Yahweh. They are the only human who's brought up into the council of Yahweh, and they're actually asked to participate in the council, to present ideas, and to help make decisions, and then execute the will of Yahweh to the people. So they're, sorry, they're the ones who speak the will of Yahweh to the people. So what everything that happened in the divine council, everything that they participated in, and everything they were commissioned to do, they then come back out of that vision onto earth, and they speak the will of God to the people. And the only way that God, the only way that the people can know the will of God is through the prophet. And she is speaking the will of God to the people. At that moment, she came up to them and began to give thanks to God and to speak about the child to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So when Joseph and Mary had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So she speaks to them too, the prophecy of God. And what's interesting is that, once again, Christ's birth is marked by the prophecy of a man and a woman. And he's going to come for the Jews and the Gentiles. And then the shepherds, the poor, and in Matthew's gospel, the magi, the wealthy, are going to come to him. 
All these different socio-political people are all being included. They all have a voice. They all have a role to play in God's kingdom. And it seems that the main idea that Christ is bringing here is unity and community and every socio-political condition, um, condition that separates people and elevates and lowers them is being removed, is being eliminated. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Robert Tanhill says this, They, as in Simeon and Anna, represent the long history of expectant people, nourished by God's promise. Zechariah and Elizabeth also fit this character type. They too are righteous, careful observers of the law, and filled with the prophetic spirit when they recognize the fulfillment of God's promise. These people represent their faith at its best. According to the values of the implied author, even though Zechariah has temporary doubts, to them, the coming of the long-awaited salvation is revealed. And so what God is making it clear is even though it's going to be a rocky path of misunderstanding who Jesus really is as the Messiah, it doesn't change the fact that there are righteous people who have been looking forward to it, have witnessed it, have validated it through the power of the Holy Spirit, and have accepted it and received who he is. And then they can die in peace knowing what they have seen and what they have testified to. Now think about Mary and Joseph. Like everywhere you turn, like, we just came here to give birth, and now these people are barging in the door and waiting to see our child. We just came here to, like, dedicate our child and, like, cleanse myself from my birthing, and now this person comes up and says, I want to hold your child in prophecy. I want to hold your child in prophecy. I can't help but thinking as an introvert, this is like an introvert's nightmare where people just keep barging into your life and be like wanting to talk to you and they're just a bunch of strangers like, no, no, I can handle all the suffering and all that kind of stuff, but not the violation of my bubble. This passage ends with this strange comment. And the child grew. Okay, that makes sense. He's a little boy, he has to physically grow. And became strong, filled with wisdom and in favor of God's upon him. The idea is that he didn't just grow physically, but he grew in understanding. Later, we're going to be told in Hebrews that he grew in obedience. And you're like, why does the perfect, sinless, all-knowing, divine God of the universe have to grow in wisdom and understanding and obedience? And the simple answer is, don't know. Here's the more possible complicated issue. There are things that God does not know. And I know that's controversial, but here's the reality. Does God know what it's like to literally physically be a human? No. Does God know what it's like to actually be tempted to want to sin? Does he know what it's like to actually say, I don't want to obey you, God, right now, like Jesus in the garden, who doesn't want to go to the cross? Does he know what it's like to suffer? Has God ever been in tremendous physical pain that he cannot escape from? And he doesn't know how he's going to overcome it and get from it. That he doesn't know when the end is going to come because he does not have the power to stop it. There are a lot. Does he actually know what it's like to actually literally sin and be separated from God and be separated from life? Does he know what it's like to feel guilty? Does he know what it's like to feel shame? Does he know what it's like to feel depressed and hopeless, that there is no end or salvation in any kind of way? 
No. And I don't want a God who knows that. I like it that God doesn't know everything. I don't want a God that knows what it's like to experientially sin and to experientially feel helpless and have no hope. So Jesus becomes a human. And Hebrews makes this express point that Jesus grew as a boy to manhood. Why did Jesus, if Jesus had only come to physically die for you, he didn't have to be born as a child. He could have literally come down as a full-grown human, plopped on the earth, ticked a bunch of people off to get him killed, and then be killed and he would have achieved it. You're like, well, he came to teach us too. Well, yeah, but he only did that for four years, three to four years. So he could have plopped down on the earth and he could have taught for three or four years as a 30-year-old man, ticked a bunch of people off, got them to kill him, and then fine. Why? Why 30 years of growing up as a child? growing up into adulthood, not doing any kind of a ministry, not redeeming people, not doing miracles, not healing people, not raising people from the dead, doing no teaching whatsoever except for that brief moment where he wowed the priest. But he's not teaching. He was just dialoguing with them. Why? Hebrews tells us so that he could be tested and tempted along all points of the scale. Now, Hebrews is not saying he's tempted in every way. Because Jesus wasn't tempted in every way. He doesn't know what it's like to be a 14-year-old girl who just got pregnant and is tempted to have an abortion. Okay, He doesn't know what it's like to feel ugly in the mirror all the time as a girl. He doesn't know what it's like to be an old man who's in so much pain that he's thinking about committing suicide. He wasn't tempted in every single way. Hebrews literally says that he was tempted along all points of the scale. Meaning that he bared the full weight of temptation. Where you and I were tempted. And we feel that temptation, and it's a weight on us. And we're like, I don't want to do it. And we feel that stress. We feel that anxiety. And we're we're fighting it. We're struggling not to give in. And then we either give in, and the weight is no longer there anymore because you gave in. Or God gives us a way out because he knew we couldn't bear any more weight. So think of somebody like bench pressing. And when they're bench pressing, they can only do so much weight. I mean, the world's strongest man, I think, I think the record now is 1,000 pounds, which is, like, ridiculous. Somebody over in Europe did it, okay? But, like, what's the possibility of a human bench pressing 10,000 pounds ever? Never, right? You, you hold this weight, and one or two things happen. You either can't do it anymore, you collapse, and the bar crushes you. Sin, giving in. Or you can't handle it anymore, and your spotter takes it off of you. Because you can't go any further. And so you're relieved. What the Hebrews is saying is that Jesus was tempted along all points of the scale, which means sin, the devil, and the, everything gave him everything that it had, all the weight and the entire world, all the pressure and all the cosmos, both spiritual and physical. And he bore all the weight of temptation, which we're going to get into the wilderness, and he did not break. Therefore, You see, I don't need Jesus to relate to me in my struggle to be tempted to take drugs or alcohol or to cheat or to abort or to kill myself. I don't need him because that's not the real struggle. The real struggle is the I want to, but I don't want to. The real struggle is the trying not to give in. The real struggle is trusting God. And in that way, he can relate to me. He knows what it's like to feel. I want to obey you, God, and die on the cross, but I don't want to obey you and die on the cross. 
Please take this weight off of me. You're my spotter. I can't do anymore. And he didn't. God didn't lift it. God didn't remove him from it. And he didn't break. He knows what it's like to bear the full pressure of temptation and weight and not give in. But the other thing is, he has to know what it's like to be rejected. He has to know what it's like to suffer. He has to know what it's like to be a little boy who gets hurt, or maybe somebody picks on him, or somebody oppresses him, and he doesn't have the physical power to rescue himself. And knowing that his God won't say, step in and save him every single time, because God doesn't step in and save us every time from every little problem. And in this way, Hebrews says that Christ, who learned obedience, he has to know what it's like to obey. The God of the universe, where, where, where it says there was, he's got to obey a flawed mother and father. I mean, he was perfect, but they weren't perfect. He has to know that so that he can truly say, I know what it's like to be human. I know what it's like to be hopeless. I know what it's like to be helpless. I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to take the commands of other people when you don't necessarily agree with them or when you know that they're not doing the right thing. I know all these things, and therefore, I can have compassion. I can have empathy. I know what it's like to be you, and therefore, my compassion and empathy is far more real. And in that sense, I think this is what he means by he learned. He learned. He grew. This is why he spent 30-something years on the earth and not just four. And imagine that. The vast majority of his life was not to teach, was not to die, but to learn what it was like to be us. Weak, oppressed, suffering. Sometimes hopeless and helpless. This is what he spent most of his time on earth doing. And maybe just to relate to other people through the eyes of a human rather than God. What is it like to be friends with people as a human? This is what he means. 